Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you remember the math magician from uh, Breaking the Magician's Code, Magic's Biggest Secrets Finally Revealed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. You don't? No. Oh. Well, Mm -hmm. this this was on TV all the time back in the day. Um, Particularly, this was like, especially 97, 98, and probably, you know, reruns thereafter. But it was this this magician, and he wore this mask uh, because he was he was like a rogue illusionist that yeah. was uh, the, that on, on this uh, this particular show he was going to come on he was going to do uh, sort of a staple magic trick and then he was going to expose how it was done and he was having to hide his identity so that the, the magician's guild wouldn't you know fire him destroy him lock him in a casket and sink him uh, into the ocean kind of a deal but but I remember even then thinking this guy was was kind of a jerk. And, you know, he's coming along and he's like, like, ah, oh, you think it is magic? I'm going to kill the magic for you. And I could easily imagine him showing up in his mask at other events to to destroy the magic of other things. Like, you know, he could do a, you know, a whole series of specials where it's like breaking the puppeteer's code, puppeteering's biggest secrets finally revealed, you know, and just going down through uh, through the list. <laughs> the puppeteer's just, secrets. Yeah. They sit on tiny stools. Yeah, they're wearing all black. But, um... But no, that <laughs> uh, that was the first thing that came to mind when we were talking about doing a, an episode on magic, on the science of illusion. Well, that there are people who say, let's not reveal the magic. And in fact, um, one of the reasons why we're talking about this is because there was a great article that came out talking about Teller of Penn and Teller. Mm-hmm. And, um, and his... Penn is the quiet one. Teller's the quiet no, one. Tell, that's what I meant. Yeah, Teller's the quiet one. Yeah. Penn is the loud one. And um, yeah, and he has been lately... Um, he has been talking about these secrets um, that they employ. But the thing here is that I think of it as meta magic. I mean, they have always been pretty forthright with their audience. Like, we are telling you the secrets behind what we're doing, and yet we are still going to fool you. We are still going to, to pull this magic trick off, and you're not going to really know. Yeah, I, I do like the way that Penn and Teller tend to handle it because, first of all, it's not a, oh, I'm going to totally expose the magic here. Some secrets about to be revealed. Prepare to have your your dreams crushed like it's not it's not about that like they're they're really bringing and it's also not a sense of uh in the case of the masked magician you don't get the sense that it's like a magician that had some bills to pay and was like all right well this is the gimmick i'm gonna do yeah like Penn and teller are all about really explaining how magic works because they love magic because there is uh there's some really amazing stuff going on beneath the surface of the illusion not only is the illusion amazing but the way the 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 illusion uh, toys with our perception of reality, that's amazing too. And they're all about sharing that. But then at the same time, they're all about using this, these secrets that they share as misdirection in a magic trick. So, yeah, it gets really meta really fast. Yeah, because they're basically saying, we're totally going to fool you, and this is how we're going to fool you, and yet this is still going to happen. Um, and if, if for people who, aren't, uh, who don't know Penn and Teller, um, let me describe them. Penn, as you say, is the one who speaks. He's mm-hmm. uh, kind of, you know, audacious. He's six foot seven. He went to clowning school, by the way. Did he? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he is usually the person who's talking about what sort of trick they're going to uh, do and sort of ushering that in while Teller usually executes the trick and is the quiet one. Yeah, he never he, talks. He's just kind of a miming uh, in the act. style. Yeah, in the act. Yeah. Um, and I guess you could call it kind of highbrow magic in a way that they really are sort of asking you to... Um, <laughs> they're they're trying to they're asking you to be critical to be analytical and yet they are obfuscating your your um, critical thinking. Yeah, they're skills. Very, very much in the 
in the vein of uh, the amazing Randy, um, who, of course, in addition to being a magician, has the you know the, the uh, this whole uh, organization that's built up. They have the prize, uh, the the uh, I think it's like a million dollars. Could be wrong on that. Okay. But a huge cash prize for people who can who can prove that they have psychic abilities. Yeah. 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 And. Uh, and Randy, uh, to a large extent, also follows on the footsteps of Houdini, who, in addition to being uh, an accomplished illusionist, was also really into exposing uh, frauds mm-hmm. who were uh, who were taking advantage of people uh, who had lost loved ones and were using like seance yeah. environments and and various tricks to uh, toy with people's emotions and loosen their purse strings. So. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of the um, the, the mold of, of these guys as well, because uh, they had that long running show. Uh, uh, we can't uh, bull plop uh, to uh, to use the censored version. Oh yeah, where they would talk about various things, often controversial things. They're skeptics. Yeah, yeah. they're they're skeptics, and they bring that that skeptic uh, viewpoint uh, into analyzing all these topics. But they they also bring a, a fun skepticism into their magic. Yeah, and so we're going to talk about um, how we can break down the magic here a little bit with science and how they actually do that as well. Particularly Teller, again, he wrote an article for Smithsonian Magazine Mm -hmm. telling uh, people how he does it. And we're going to talk about why magicians are like camouflage designers of the mind. We talked about camouflage and uh, some of the same uh, subterfuges going on in camouflage patterns as as these uh, magic acts. Uh, But first, let's, uh, let's talk about the New York Times article, Science of Illusion, by Alex Stone. He uh, ushers in the article by talking about a coin trick, a really simple coin trick. So he says, okay, pinch a coin at its edge between thumb and first fingers of your right hand and begin to place it in your left palm without letting go. I'm doing that now. Okay. Begin to close the fingers of the left hand. Okay. Okay. The instant the coin is out of sight, extend the last three digits of your right hand and secretly retract the coin. Presumably that means, like, put it in a little... Okay. Space in- so the last three are kind of they're they're kind of serving as a, a cover, like a, a, a like a shield. Right, right. Well, also it's making it look like it's dropped in. You're like you're freeing your fingers uh-huh. from the coin, okay. but at the same time you're depositing that coin. Let's say right inside your sleeve. Okay. Okay. Um, and then he says, um, secretly retract the coin. Make a fist with your left hand as if holding the coin as your right hand palms the coin and drops to the side. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you're going to reproduce that coin later. All right. What they say in this article is that this is a, re- a great example of something called retention vanish. This is the illusion of a false transfer. And it happens when there's a lag in the brain's perception of motion called persistence of vision. So the audience will actually see, this is the crazy thing, the audience will actually see the coin in left palm for a split second after the hands separate. And this is because your visual neurons don't stop firing once a given stimulus here, the coin, mm-hmm. uh, is no longer present. So your brain, again, we talked about this, this, this great pattern recognition machine makes that coin appear because you have the visual neurons still being stimulated. So what they're saying is that our perception of reality lags behind reality about one one-hundredth of a second. And this is what magician, magicians are exploiting. Wow, it's it's really interesting in that we um, we also recorded an episode today on camouflage, mm-hmm. which either just came out before this one or will come out next. 
and there's a lot of o- overlap between these two uh, topics. In mm-hmm. camouflage, you are toying with pattern recognition a lot of the time and, uh, and using distraction and, and misdirection to fool a potential enemy. Mm-hmm. And in, in magic, we see a similar thing. Here we're exploiting pattern recognition. We're, we're, uh, we're, we're exploiting the lag in perception uh, and reality. Yeah, and this is where the cognitive bias comes in, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we can say that cognitive, cognitive bias can be traced to evolution, to our ancestors, because missing a pattern was much more dangerous than seeing a pattern right. that wasn't there, right? So that's kind of why we're hardwired like that. Um, so if magi- magicians can tweak the patterns enough, then you can lead the brain to cognitive bias. And that's where we're constructing this false logic for ourselves. And as you say, they're employing um, not just the um, you know, a pattern sort of falling into the background and us accepting that the coin has been transferred, but also this idea of dazzle as well, and uh, this idea of distraction. Yes. Okay, so um, absurdism, humor, always comes into play with magicians for a really good reason. Yeah, I found this uh, really fascinating uh, because, I, I mean, on one hand, it, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious. You're 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 going to use basic misdirection. You're you're not looking, you're not looking at the coin. You're going to look at the assistant skimpy outfit, or mm-hmm. you're not looking at the you know at at the uh, the thing that's about to disappear. You're looking at the elaborate prop. You're not looking at the handcuffs on the guy. You're looking at this uh, enormous vat of water that uh, they're being immersed in. Right. So you end up focusing on the spectacle and not necessarily on the small detail upon which the entire trick hinges. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, so you're, you're taking in this environment, you're you're working it out in your head, what's about to happen, you're, you have expectations of what's going to happen, throw in some absurdity, throw in some humor, and they find that laughter disables your ability to think critically for at least a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've, I've been observing this recently, um, playing this, uh, this card game called Cabo. Um, we'll pull this out with friends, and it's a very simple memory game. Um, you can look it up online. It's like, like I think they used to sell it on Etsy. It's like, it's got like a, one of the cards has a rainbow, has a unicorn puking a rainbow. <laughs> so it's that kind of fun little uh, game. But you end up having several people sit around, and you're you don't know what your cards are necessarily. Mm-hmm. You get peeks of them, and you have to memorize it. Other people are memorizing their cards, trying to keep track of cards that are moving. And inevitably, if you have some fun people playing. Somebody's going to crack a joke. Somebody's going to say something amusing or something is going to happen. And then you totally don't remember where anything is. Right. That's the distraction yeah. there. So throw that out in a magic trick. So it's like people think they're smart. Oh, I wonder where that coin is. Then they throw in a fart joke and you're good to, you're good to go. Like reset <laughs> the, the entire memory. Well, and Teller says that they all immediately follow a trick with a joke mm-hmm. every single time. And that's exactly because they're manipulating that part of your brain. Um, I want to go down real quick his his uh, seven things that he does okay. um, to to uh, defraud an audience. Um, one, which we already talked about, exploit pattern recognition. Okay. Two, make the secret a lot more troublesome than the trick seems worth. Yeah, overly complex uh, tricks. Yeah, like for instance, he said that uh, for uh, an appearance on David Letterman, for two weeks they they uh, trained themselves to work with these cockroaches, two hundred of them, really mm-hmm. slow moving, so that they would not, you know, skitter off um, when they got their camera time. They created some styrofoam thing that um, that uh, works really well with roaches to crawl on, and then they inserted it into this hat. Mm-hmm. And I mean, really seriously. It, it, oh, and he said that you know they worked with an animal trainer or this uh, entomologist, you know, day after day, so that they wouldn't scream like little girls when they had to handle <laughs> the, the roaches. His words. Um, 
And so, you know, that is a lot of trouble for that trick, right? Yeah. Okay. So in, the reason is because he says you have to create some sort of uh, simulacrum of reality that people can buy into. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, he says... Which, by the way, that kind of ties into our uh, discussions of fiction and reality. The idea that yeah. you have a scene where something fantastic is going to happen. Say James Bond wrestles a squid, but early in, in the book he's making coffee or he's having a uh, steak. Right. You're setting up these yeah. this, this uh, illusion of reality. that, And again, the buying into thing, this mm-hmm. this idea, this narrative that, that we're buying into. Uh, number three, you get hard to think critically if you're laughing. Four, keep the trickery outside the frame. So he's talking about, um, you know, if he's, you're, you pick a card out of a 52 deck mm-hmm. uh, or a 52 card deck, um, if he's taking off his his jacket and throwing it outside the frame of what's mm-hmm. going on, that's diverting your attention because he's doing something right then, right? Some sort of sleight of hand. Uh, five, to fool the mind, combine at least two tricks. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And uh, he says, number six, nothing fools you better than the lie you tell yourself. Um, and this is something that he he means that you come to discover on your own. The magician lets you discover a truth on your own. Ah, yeah. Plants it, really. Number seven, if you're given a choice, you believe you have acted freely. That, I think, is fascinating. We'll talk about that, too. Um, but that that's kind of how he goes about these tricks. And um, that's when we talk about cognitive bias happening. And that's because your brain is telling you all these things. It's making up a story. It's creating the pattern. And misdirection becomes a really key item uh, for a magician. Yeah, like, like I say, misdirection is all about diverting the um, the viewer's attention from mm-hmm. the often trivial-looking thing or the small detail upon which the entire uh, uh, trick or, or illusion, rather, is uh, is hinging. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, that's that's why you have. I mean, I mean, part of it, of course, is its performance, and performance needs to be visually amusing. But you have all these elements in a in a magic trick that uh, that are distracting. You have a beautiful assistant that's skimpily dressed. You have magnificent props. You have uh, explosions and fire and, uh, and and slashing swords and musical accompaniment and uh, and lighting effects. Um, it reminds me a lot too of how uh, uh, of how a really um, well-done haunted houses put together because even that is about the, the scares there are, are about misdirection if they're done right. It's about let's get you looking over here and then something will come from this direction. Let's have you thinking about what uh, the place sounds like and then we'll shock you with what the place feels like, that kind of thing. I have a good real-life example of this. Okay. It was, an, uh, I guess, an inadvertent magic trick and it was how do you hide a uh, half-naked woman okay. in, in plain view? Okay. Okay. So, World Science Festival, I'm walking down 12th oh, Street. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to one of the venues, and I'm passing in front of this church, or I'm approaching this church. On my left, wedding party is on the stairs of the church. Mm-hmm. On the right of the sidewalk, the bride is about to get out of the car. Mm-hmm. Coming forward is a woman in jean shorts and no shirt or bra, and she's just walking down the street, because it's New York, and people do that, right? And what I found amazing and made me feel completely insane, like I was the only person, I think, actually, who noticed, is that as she is crossing in front of the wedding party on the stairs, none of them look at her because they're all looking at the bride coming out of the the car. And I'm thinking about this. Did they not see this half-naked woman pass right in front of them? Hmm. And that is how, this this is very similar to a magic trick, right? Mm -hmm. That how could you hide this, you know, thing that should be really obvious, and it's that misdirection. Huh. 
Anyway. Well, it makes me think. I feel like um, there have been some uh, some like bank heist movies where they where they've used that, where it's like let's have a sexy lady over here, and then the guard you know the guard doesn't notice and they slip by him. And it also ties into my my longstanding theory that you could potentially rob a bank with a basket of kittens. Like if you were just to bring them in and like place them on the table, and people are going to be transfixed by the kittens, and they'll be like, "Oh my goodness!" And then they'll touch the kittens, and they're like, "They're so soft, I can feel their heart." And then you just sort of slip by, and uh, I can feel like, their heart. You know how you, you, you feel them? They're so warm. They're like little. Yeah. 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 Oh. Yeah. All right. But no, you could you could totally rob a bank with them. That's my. I just prediction. see something horrible happening to the kittens. I have to say in that scenario. No. You can't bring a basket full of kittens into a robbery scenario yeah, and I not expect one of them to be splatted. The, I'm the sorry. O- the only downside I see is that eventually that basket of kittens will have to testify in court. So there'll be like up on the witness stand, there'll be a basket of kittens, and uh, you know, really abusive lawyers coming in and really trying to grill them on the stand, and they're just they're kittens, so they're they're just completely out of it. And there's your next Pixar film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the bandit kittens. All right, so um, one of the uh, the things that Teller was talking about is to fool the mind, combine at least two tricks. Yes, I wanted to talk about that because he says that um, every night in Las Vegas, I make a children's ball come to life like a trained dog. My method, the thing that fools your eyes is to puppeteer the ball with a thread too fine to be seen from the audience. But during the routine, the ball jumps through a wooden hoop several times, and that seems to rule out the possibility of a thread. The hoop is what magicians call misdirection, a second trick that proves the first. The hoop is genuine, but the deceptive choreography I took, um, or I used, took 18 months to develop. Again, see number two, more trouble than it's worth. It also, I can't help but think of... um a fiction in this case too. Take one idea that's really cool. Take another idea that's really cool. Combine them, mm-hmm. and if you do it in the right way, no one will necessarily notice that all you did was say take the pacing for uh, you know this classic novel mm-hmm. and simply infuse it with uh, whatever this trend happens to be. Right. The, the idea is not to see the underpinnings uh, yeah. bursting underneath. Right. Um, uh, Teller is also talking about independent verification. So he says when he cuts the cards, like he mm-hmm. does a magic trick with cards. Um, I think he says like the worst uncle magic trick you can imagine. Um, he says, I let you glimpse a few faces, and then you conclude the deck contains 52 different cards. Again, pattern recognition. Yeah, but who's going to... Who's actually going to sit there and, and look at them, right? I mean, it's just... Well, you go through... All you need is a couple, right? Yeah. You say, oh, okay. But when, in fact, he's actually taken those three cards and replicated a full deck... Yeah. By taking 18 different decks of cards and taking out those three cards. Yeah. Or, so or that cases, he's always going to get one of those three cards. Yeah. Also cases where the magician, you know, is, is allowing uh, individuals who are participating in the, uh, the trick to handle objects that are involved, to touch the cards, to touch the hoop, to touch the wand, whatever is being used uh, to, to verify that it is not gimmicked. Right, and you think, too, that you've made a choice, right? Yeah. You've made a choice. You took that card, and this this was of your, you know, this of 52 different cards, um, and this this was the decision that you made, and uh, so then you feel like you have some skin in the game, right? Yeah. And what Teller says is that uh, if you are given a choice, you believe you have acted freely. This is one of the darkest of all psychological secrets. And he actually does a little political action and points back to our political system and says that this idea of having a two-party system is much like having uh, 52 cards of the same three cards in them, which mm. is sort of interesting. Um, you know, it also, I'm reminded, too, of pickpockets here. Uh, and there's, there's a certain uh, 
overlap here because you do see plenty of uh, magicians, especially sleight of hand magicians, that are also uh, skilled at at least performance pickpocketing, pickpocketing, if not actual pickpocketing, and uh, and like some simple pickpocketing techniques mm-hmm. are as simple as oh I bump into you right while I actually take your wallet because you're 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 distracted by the bump to your shoulder you don't feel the slight um, you know fabric movement of your wallet disappearing that kind of thing. Or, or also, um, you know, distracting uh, by visuals. You know, you're handed yeah. a baby, or, um, or here's a, you know, an attractive lady, that kind of thing. You know, what's uh, interesting about that is that their pickpocketing, um, uh, I guess you could say, rules are predicated on the way that you actually approach the wallet. Yeah. And this was from an article by Jonah Lair and Wired. It's called Magic in the Brain. And apparently, your eye tracks really well when you when you, it's on a sort of flat plane. So if your um, if your hand is just reaching across mm-hmm. in a horizontal line, then you're able to track it really easily. But if you do an arc like this, your your our machinery is pretty flawed in that sense. In that our our brains, our eyes aren't able to really read that motion. Huh. Isn't that interesting? That is, and it also it, that that ties into a lot of the flourishes that you see in in. In magic and in these performance yeah. illusions, because people aren't just eh, I'm grabbing this orange and I'm going to grab that one. No, there's a lot of flourishing and and movements of the arm. It becomes difficult to track exactly what's going on. We are gesticulating wildly right yeah. now as we talk. By the way, yeah. um, and this doing is these uh, fancy one of those movements. days where we need the camera in here. Yeah, so yeah. The um, but you're right. There's there's no linear movements. It's all sort of circular. Um, all right, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about this inherent blindness we have, whether or not we're looking at a face or we're making a choice on a particular, let's say, jam that we like. All right, we're back. So, we're going to talk about jam. Yeah, we're going to talk about jam. Uh, preserves, jelly, I don't know what you call it, but uh, jam in my house. And the reason I want to talk about it is because it was called out in this New York Times Science of Illusion article um, in one study where shoppers in a blind taste test had two different kinds of jam to pick from. Okay, so they can't see it, mm-hmm. uh, but they're just getting spoonfuls of it. They choose the one they like. They are then given a second taste from the jar they picked. Oh, they think they are getting a second taste of it. But well, the researchers actually switched the jam flavor. Uh-huh. So they get a second spoonful, and it is not the one they like, but they fail to notice that they're tasting the wrong jam, even when the two flavors are like super dissimilar, like grapefruit and cinnamon apple. Because their brain has already created the narrative that this is the one I like and uh, we're going with this. Yeah, there have been some really fascinating experiments along this line involving wine, where you bring people in and you really color someone's expectations of this wine by letting them know that, uh, oh, this is a fine vintage, this is a a more expensive wine, Mm -hmm. and then this one is cheaper and it's, you know, we've got. This is the two buck chuck. Yeah, this is the two buck chuck and this is the, uh, I don't know, fill in the blanks. What's a fancy wine? Uh, something, something. Yeah, that one. So the people end up going into that experiment. Their narrative is colored, like you say. They're already writing the story of mm-hmm. their their experience with that wine, and then they go in, and then they're uh, they end up getting it wrong because uh, it was swapped on them. I mean, this is the classic: we secretly swapped this person's coffee with Folgers Instant kind right, of thing. Right. And, uh, but it but it works. That's the thing. It, it, you. So much of our experience of something is colored by our anticipation of it, uh, what other people seem to be uh, expecting of it. And then if you uh, switch things around at the last minute, 
you can get a lot past a person. Well, and there's this uh, another thing called change blindness, which I thought was mm-hmm. fairly really cool. Um, it is a study that shows how minor distractions can impair our ability to remember remember faces. Uh, psychologist Daniel Simons had an experimenter stop random strangers on the street and ask for directions. And then midway through the conversation, uh, a pair of Confederates, call them Confederates, walked between them and blocked the stranger's view. And the experimenter switched places with one of the stooges. So the person that asked directions was then replaced. Yeah, I've seen the video of this. Yeah. Yeah, when we do a, a blog post to go with this podcast, I'll uh, try and find that video and embed it for you so you can watch it right there. Yeah, and it really is. It's great uh, because, you know, it's just that split second, um, uh, you know, where distraction uh, and then the stranger is talking to a completely different person. And most of the time, just like the jam experiment, they really didn't notice. Yeah. Which I, I can see that. I think I that probably would happen to me before because your brain is occupied with other stuff. Right. But again, this is what magicians are exploiting. And and doing it in a way that uh, that you don't notice. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is to the seamless incorporation of distraction and misdirection, uh, so that at the end of it, you 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 would have to really think back on the moments where you were uh, you were tampered with. Well, it also makes you think too, like how how. Um how much stimuli we really can't take in. Right. That That's entering, the light entering into our eyes and our brain trying to make sense of everything. Yeah, and how much of it is the brain just filling in the gaps? Like, for instance, seeing the coin that isn't actually there, but uh, it's just filling in the gaps because it can't actually uh, assemble all of that information. No, uh, we would melt time. down if we yeah. tried to, right? It's almost like the, the um, when we were talking about camouflage and we were talking about Tom Harris's article and about this continuity and our brains taking those you know, stack of blocks mm-hmm. and saying, okay, that's one unit because they're all one color. Yeah. Um, okay, now they're two different colors or two different units. Um, that's just the way our brains work. All right, so here's something really interesting, again, from the New York Times article. It's about transcranial magnetic stimulation. And this, this old TMS scrambler has shown up before in our podcast, uh, notably in as the God Machine used yes. by Michael Persinger, mm-hmm. uh, so-called because its ability to induce feelings of transcendence, uh, but also has been uh, the culprit behind some hallucinations. People imagine ghosts mm-hmm. when paranormal experiences, paranormal alien abduction, mm-hmm. abductions, rather. Yeah, when their brains are basically futzed with with this this super magnet that is placed over their head, yeah. uh, and, and manipulates parts of their brains that that create these um, these hallucinations for them. And this is we talked about this before as a possible explanation again for. Um, abductions, um, alien abductions, and it turns out that some people have this high lability and low abilities in their brain. In other words, they're a little bit more sensitive to this magnet than other people are. So are magicians using this magnet to scramble the brains of audiences before they pick their pockets? Yet. Um, But it has been used uh, to look at our attention span. So in other words, they've used this TMS over our parietal cortex uh, this is the part of the brain that controls attention. Mm-hmm. And they notice that when they futz with it, of course, people um, have a harder time identifying faces and recalling things, um, which is, you know, not surprising. But again, here's here's something that magicians have known for thousands of years um, and have been doing these magic tricks and uh, that neuroscientists are now just really excited to uh, investigate through magic. Sort mm-hmm. of interesting. And again, uh, while while magicians are not using magnets on people's brains, it is worth remembering that um, 
certainly if you go to a, a, a magic show in Vegas, there is a, uh, there's a very good possibility that uh, the individuals observing that magic show have, uh, have had something to drink before it really gets going here. Um, True. And you're having environments where, you know, where, where wine and beverages are served. So you're already sort of, uh, you, again, you're not pointing a, a magnetic uh, ray gun at someone's head, but... Uh, well, in a sense, you are. It's just it comes in a, in a glass with a fancy little umbrella on it. Well, your critical thinking abilities are yeah. probably a teeny bit impaired. Yeah. And, I mean, we talked about that lag in motion, right, with mm-hmm. your eye and, and seeing those coin tricks. So we already know that when you have too much to drink, that your own um, ability or to act is... even a little is, to drink, you know? Yeah, yeah. That yeah, is, is a little bit impaired as well. So I mean, one, one drink is enough to... Uh, you don't see through the illusions uh, of the world around you. Uh, much less what the guy is, is doing on the stage. You know? Oh, man. That's nice. Yeah. Nicely done. Well, wine does more than Milton can to uh, justify God's ways to man. So. Yeah. But you had a quote you wanted to end it uh, <laughs> instead of me ending it with an unrelated quote. Oh, no. I just thought Jen O'Leary in his article on Wired um, nailed it. He just said, the magician must sell people a lie even as they know they are being lied to. Unless the illusion feels more real than the truth, there is no magic. And we certainly want there to be magic. All the time. Yeah. So speaking of magic, let's haul the robot over here and Carl. have him deliver us some magic in the form of uh, li- listener mail. All right. We heard from a listener by the name of Gene. Gene wrote in about uh, about the horror episode, but also a little bit about uh, uh, Prometheus and stuff. He says, hey, guys, uh, thanks for all the awesome podcasts. Uh, I work third shift pretty much by myself, so it's great that there are so many uh, to listen to. Uh, you are also always smart uh, and funny. I love that. I rarely write in to anybody, but the horror podcast was just too good not to. I've been a lifelong horror fan, so a lot of what you talked about hit home. Seeing horror movie covers at the video store as a kid, uh, eat you in the bum ghoulies. Um, <laughs> which, uh, by the way, uh, I, I did a blog post um, where I talked about 10 different VHS covers that kind of messed with me as a kid and what I thought they may have done to me. So, All inspired on, uh, inspired by Eat in, Me in the Bum Ghoulies. Yes, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, inspired by our episode on horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he continues, um, well, he says that he's on board with the idea that clowns are horrible. Says they, he says they don't scare me like they do my wife. My problem is with sad clowns and hobo clowns, which is interesting because those are the ones that I hold up as being... That's always my defense uh, against anyone who's afraid of clowns. I'm like, well, the hobo clowns are great. How can you not like those? But he says they are images of sad, broken people, and that's supposed to be funny. It just doesn't sit right with me. So it's an interesting perspective. Uh, anyway, he continues, for some reason, people-on-people people horror bothers me in films. I'm sure there's a psychology paper uh, on it somewhere out there. I prefer supernatural monster evil-based horror. Um and I and I tend to agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's a different scenario when you have a monster attacking somebody. That's as much an idea attacking somebody, uh, or it's uh, or at the very least something unreal. Well, there's that benign violation theory, right? Yeah. So if you take if you make it non-human, it becomes benign in a sense that yeah. it's probably not going to happen to you in real life. Where people doing horrible things to people, that's a lot more agreeable. It's weird. I used to be different on this. I used to my my old response to this was well. A person with a knife, I can run from a person with a knife. I can fight back against a person with a knife. Mm-hmm. But a ghost that kills people with its mind or something like that, if that were real, I wouldn't have a, as much of a defense about it. Um, interestingly enough, a friend that I saw Prometheus with, his wife didn't come because she is totally fine with like people-on-people violence in movies, but not supernatural or uh, unbelievable like alien-type uh, hmm. things. 
Um, so anyway, uh, Gene goes on to, to share that he's also a fan of, uh, of Space Horror. He mentions a, a few things that he digs. Uh, to the Alien franchise, Event Horizon, which uh, was fun back in uh, in high school, Pandorum, which, uh, which which I really enjoyed. I think a lot of people did not like it, but I thought it had some really cool science fiction ideas in it. Um, and then in, and also Dennis Quaid, so you know, sci fi film with Dennis Quaid, I'm always on board for. Uh, and uh, and then he also said there was a Star Wars novel with zombies in it that he was uh, he was into. So um, and he also mentions the uh, the, the Dead Space video game series, which. Uh, uh, which uh, he uh, holds up as really good space horror, and, and I've actually been toying with this uh, game series recently, and uh, it's—I agree that it's—it's uh, it's really well done, really well done game with a lot of scares in it, and some actually some interesting science in places. All right, well, let's listen to one more listener mail here, and then we will call it a podcast. Yeah. All right, and here's one from Eleanor. Eleanor writes in on our Science of Prometheus episode. She says, Hi, Rob and Julie. I just found your podcast and love it. I have a question about the recent episode, The Science of Prometheus. You brought up the subject of panties. You talked about in detail about Ripley's panties in Alien, but you didn't discuss in detail Shaw's panties in Prometheus. I thought her quote-unquote panties looked more like a gauzy loincloth, something like Jesus wore on the cross. Uh, they weren't sexy at all, but her buff body was. What did you think of Shaw's panties? Um, wow. What did I think of Shaw's panties? Well, okay, I agree that they weren't, they did not sexualize her. And I think. Any more than she was wearing panties and she was running around. Yeah. I think I was so distracted by the blood on her from, Mm -hmm. from the scene where she performs her own C-section that, um, I didn't even think about it because my, my main thing was, hey, doesn't anybody notice she's covered in blood? Yeah. But I I know that they were all wrapped up in, in, uh, in the old dude. Uh, in that scene, so that's probably why they didn't. Anyway, these are all willing uh, suspension of disbelief issues, but... Yeah. I, I My thoughts are pretty much the same. I, I, I felt like, yes, she had underwear on, so you, a woman in her underwear in a movie, you, it's hard to say that it's not a sexually charged scene just because it's, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. If, if it wasn't meant to be sexy, she wouldn't, in some way, or at least sexually provocative... She probably wouldn't be in her underwear, or same with him. He wouldn't be in his underwear if you weren't intended to, to toy with us in that way on some level. But that being said, you know there there was not. I didn't think there was anything overtly sexual about what she was wearing, and and you could. It's an interesting commentary about the the gauziness of it and the potential loincloth Christiness. Yeah, of it. I was gonna say. I think that there's so many different ways you could read this. Um, Movie and some people have certainly looked at the religious aspects. If that mm-hmm. fits in nicely with some of the thematic stuff, so it's interesting that um, that that you pick that up. We'll see what the next thirty years of uh, academic papers on the topic have to say <laughs> about it. All right. Well, if you have something you want to share with us, if you want to talk about magic, if we have some magicians, some illusionists, some pickpockets out there, write in and let us know. We'd love to hear f- from you and you know what your thoughts um, on all of this uh, happen to be. Uh, or if you just have a particular magician that you like and you want to. Get their name out there. Then write in. Let us know. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. 